Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Philip Lembry, the Chief Executive of Compassion and World Farming. He's been at this for 20 years professionally, campaigning for the welfare of animals. He's also a bird watcher and wildlife enthusiast. He's really leading the International Farm Animal Welfare Organization, Compassion in World Farming. The way animals are raised, treated right before they come to slaughter and during the slaughter process is unacceptable for anything that's considered humane and human. The way that they are overcrowded, the sicknesses that they get, the way many of them are fed, and Philip is here to change the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome one of the greatest advocates for animals in the world, Philip Lembry. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Kim, thank you so much, and I'm delighted to be with you, and thank you so much for for your introduction. I really appreciate it. It's really true. You had done many years of work for the World Society for the Protection of Animals. And I have to tell you that some of us who are not educated about what WSPA does have skepticism about it. What do they really do for animals? And since you have been working with them for so long, I wonder if you could just talk about your past with them. Yeah, sure. Well, my past really, certainly in professional animal welfare, started actually with Compassion in World Farming, as you know, in 1990. Uh, I was uh, the campaigns director for pretty much the whole of the 1990s uh, at Compassion. I then left uh, Compassion for five years, and during that period, I spent... uh, just over a couple of years working as the uh, as the global director of communications for uh, Whisper for WSPA, and uh, you know, in my view, they do a great job. You know, they they uh, they work in regions of the world that are difficult to uh, get cut through. Um, they work on the whole range of issues: companion animals, farm animals, disaster relief. Uh, and everything in between. And, uh, no, I think they're a great organization. I think they're worthy of support. I appreciate you saying that because some people say, oh, they're a political organization. And a lot of the uh, people that are unfamiliar with what they do, some of them say, well, they don't really do what they say they're going to do. And they do this about a lot of organizations when it comes to animals. Why is it, in your view, that so many people have a paradigm about animals that they're not sentient, that they don't feel? Why? I think it's uh, it boils down to you know old habits. Maybe people haven't thought these things through, and uh, you know we uh, people need to I think um, embrace animals as uh, you know part of the continuum of life that uh, that that human beings uh, and animals are all part of. You know, it's that thing that um, I guess. You know, some cultures have ingrained a, a feeling that, uh, that that the world, the natural world, is there for humans to use uh, in the way that that uh, humankind likes. And uh, you know, I think increasingly that's being challenged, and people are realizing that animals are sentient beings, that they do feel pain and they do suffer, uh, that they do have needs and wants and that what happens to them matters to them and it's that last point actually what happens to them matters to them and that is why i got involved uh, all those years back because it matters to me too there are some countries that commit greater abuses and massive cruelty to animals now I'm not here to get into a political thing about which countries and all that. But I will tell you something that affected me that I saw on television. I saw a cooking show 
where a Chinese man put a live fish in a pan and started to cook it alive. Now, I know we're not talking about fish, but I had such an issue with it, how anybody could do that to anything living. What level of disconnect you have to be at personally and or culturally to operate that way? I, I totally agree. You know, it's shocking. It's appalling and it shouldn't go on. Uh, and I, I had the same reaction in the 1980s when uh, I was at school. Uh, we had a school talk um, and uh, someone came in from an organization I'd never heard of before at that time, an organization called Compassion and World Farming. And I learned how uh, calves were being kept throughout their six months of life in veal crates where they couldn't turn around. But the thing which got me, especially as a teenage bird, bird watcher, as, as uh, I was about uh, 16 at that time, the thing which really got me was the way that hens – uh, were being kept for the whole of their lives in these tiny barren cages where they couldn't stretch their wings, where they were you know, almost as good as living on top of each other, where they couldn't scratch the ground under their feet because they were on bare sloping wire. You know, uh, you know, I it's believe mean. It's so think. mean. It's so it mean. Is. And I, I believe as many people do, I think that you know, we get one shot at life and uh, uh, and to me – uh, to have your life effectively taken away in that way is just appalling. So that is why I joined the fight against factory farming, and that's why you know I've, I've uh, joined the the battlefront, if you like, to win hearts and minds across the world. How come it is that factory farming is allowed to continue the way it is? Let's just say, for example, that factory farming people have a disconnect and they do not even consider that the animals are suffering because it's a non-issue. It doesn't matter. They're simply food. Why is it allowed to continue for health reasons when they get acidosis and other diseases, these animals, from the terrible way that they're kept before they're slaughtered? Well, I think the big thing we're up against is vested interest and the fact that there has been a lot of investment in uh, the factory farm machine. Uh, we have to remember that Worldwide, we rear and slaughter 67 billion farm animals now every year. 67 oh my God. billion. And that two out of every three of those animals are now factory farmed. They're now kept indoors permanently uh, and grain fed. So we're up against a huge, huge vested interest. Uh, and we've, we're up against, you know, a, a machine, if you like, that is looking to self-perpetuate. So, you know, we're often not dealing with simple strand argumentation like, you know, if you keep animals in this way, uh, they're going to suffer and therefore it shouldn't happen. Um, there's a whole lot more behind it. And that is why we need everyone to join, uh, you know, the, the, uh, th that battle that I mentioned for hearts and minds um, for a better life for farm animals. I have to tell you something. Several weeks ago, there was a massive slaughter of dolphins in Japan. Uh -huh. And I don't know what led me, but I put this communication on a blog and I said, there is no way in today's society that any animal has to suffer in order to die for food. They don't have to be harpooned. They don't have to be cut up alive. No animals have to or should ever suffer in order to be food. That paradigm is critical that people understand that and that to allow animals to suffer mercilessly 
to become food is not acceptable. It's not humane, and any humans that think that this is acceptable are totally disconnected. I will tell you another thing. When Sarah Palin was running for vice president, it was during Thanksgiving a few years ago. Right behind her, there was a machine that chops up animals alive. They took a turkey, they shoved it in the machine, and you could hear it cutting it up alive. That is not okay. How anybody thinks that's funny, I don't get it. This is part of agribusiness, isn't it? It is, and uh, unfortunately, and I agree with you, it shouldn't be. It needn't be, you know. If we can put uh, if we can put people up into space, uh, then you know, surely we can uh, make sure that uh, you know, if we are going to uh, use animals for food, that uh, that they are uh, you know, treated decently and that they don't suffer. Sadly, all too often that just does not happen. Uh, and I think it comes down to the fact that uh, you know, two out of three farm animals in the whole wide world are now seen as you know, commodities as things, as uh, parts in a machine, uh, that they're now even further removed from the concept of sentience than uh, than they might once have been. You have to remember that even in even in even in the European Union, which you know, in the nation of animal lovers that uh, that the UK seems you know likes to see itself as, it was not until 1997 that we managed to get the European Union to legally recognize animals as sentient beings, that they can feel pain, that they can suffer, and that their well-being should be taken into account when framing legislation. So, you know, there is so much to do on every front, on every continent uh, of of the world. And, uh, you know, the important thing is for us to make sure that, that we take the steps that are within our reach, that are within our grasp, and that we never stop walking, that each day we take another step for animals. We're making progress. It's a long road. We will get there. You remember a few years ago when Oprah made some remark about cattle or ranchers or something on her show about the mistreatment of them and they sued her? Do you remember that in the United States? Did you I hear do. about that? Yeah, I do. I do. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, one of the things that we're up against is that uh, you're often uh, you're th- s- telling it the way it is, is. Um, Marginalizing, it's I would difficult. imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 difficult because uh, you know the way that the often the way the law is framed. But you know we have to remember that we've got a huge weight of evidence, a weight of truth on our side. You know, increasingly people are waking up to the fact that that animals are um, you know living creatures with their own um, sense of. Uh, uh, of well-being, uh, of the, the, what happens to them matters to them. And that also people are making the connection that to factory farm animals and cause them suffering is not only wrong ethically for what we do to the animal, but it also harms uh, ourselves. It harms public health, it harms the environment, and it undermines our very food security. You know, I talked about two out of three farm animals being kept in factory farms being grain-fed. Well, it might be all right, arguably, to grain-feed animals if they gave you back as much food protein as, as, uh, as, as they take, as they, feed, uh, as they consume. But actually, you know what? Animals in factory farms are protein factories in reverse. 
for on average across all species on average for for uh, every one uh, pound for every one kilo of meat that you get uh, out of a factory farm it takes six pounds or six kilos of grain uh, to get that uh, to get that amount uh, and if you put all of the grain that is being grown to feed to factory farmed animals in one place, it would cover an area the size of half of the United States. Wow. Or in my, in, in my region, the entire European Union, 27 countries. That is how much grain we are wasting through farm animals every year. It's shocking. It's hard to believe that the way animals are treated and fed, that this is sustainable. This is against sustainability. It's not sustainable. But hey, this is where we have to take heart because we know the statistics that by the middle of the century, by 2050, there will be in the order of 9 billion people instead of the current 7 billion. We are, you're probably aware that um, the United Nations predict that with the growth in, in uh, population and a growth in consumption of meat and dairy products worldwide, that we're likely to see a doubling of the farm animal population. So about 120 billion farm animals reared and slaughtered every year by mid-century. All of that uh, comes at a time when uh, land will get ever more scarce because climate change will see to it that the sea will come up and land will disappear. I have to just say this to you so you know where I stand on this. Last year, I would have agreed with you. I would have totally agreed with you about that. After spending 200 hours on climate change, I now don't agree with that particular position. I know that that's what the propaganda is. That's what we've been told. But I did a deep level investigation into this and I don't accept it anymore. So as part of the basis, I want you not to worry. The sea will not rise. <laughs> we are in a cooling uh, period, actually, right now. That's as, interesting. As you well, will see. Yeah, I'll send you those links to the shows I did. It'll blow your mind. I did every facet of climate. CO2, the nature of it, sea levels, how they're usually tested, the difference between computer modeling and actual facts. Polar bears, the greenhouse gases, volcanism, how this whole thing with climate change started, the cyclical thing, the hockey stick, you name it, I did it. So wow. don't worry about that for the animals. <laughs> I want to I want to relieve you of the concern. I know it's what the going thing is, and if you dare say anything, you're a denier, but if you get into the facts of how climate is usually examined over cycles and actually what was the machine that got this communication called climate change not being a cycle and that CO2 is the demon, you'll feel very differently. I know I did last year. If you would have told me this last year, I probably would have said you hate the earth. But I know differently now. I love the earth and I love animals so much. I love your optimism on that. Um, but let me just yes. continue the yes. theme. We'll Please. move on Please from do. that. Please do. You know, one thing we know is that, you know, the earth isn't getting much bigger. Uh, and the, the the popular consensus, let's put it that yeah. way, in scientific community, is that uh, the, the, te the planet's warming up, and and we're going over the concept of peak oil. That, uh, sorry, peak land. That land is is going to get more scarce. We we also know that uh, oil is running out. It's a finite resource. Uh, now, what's oil got to do with factory farming? Well, not in the U.S. By the way, it's not running out. 
Prudhoe Bay has 200 years of oil that they won't release to the public, and that's a fact. But anyway, I just wanted you to know about the U.S. We're set here yeah, in the yeah, U.S. Yeah. Well, you've got to remember that yeah. it's a finite resource. It will run sure, out at some sure. point worldwide and that uh, industrial agriculture uses oil aplenty uh, to, to the fact that one academic has put it uh, that industrial agriculture is basically turning petrochemicals into food. You know, we yeah. use it for the for the artificial fertilizers, for the chemical pesticides, and all the paraphernalia that goes with it. Indeed. So we're using a lot of oil, and we know that that's going to run out. And at the same time, uh, we know that water is becoming ever more scarce. Uh, Two billion people are in areas of water scarcity worldwide right now. Right. By 2050, that could be something between four billion and seven billion. Again, factory farming uses a lot of a lot of uh, water. So, using popular scientific opinion now, uh, Kim. Sure. Uh, what we're looking at by mid-century is a gr- is a resource-hungry regime called factory farming in a world where there'll be more people, more animals, less land, less oil, and less water. And by any analysis, that simply won't add up. It I agree with you. Absolutely agree and with you. And that is why we need to move to a new model of sustainability. And people say to me, well, you know, how are we going to invent this new type of farming? Well, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here because the kind of uh, human scale uh, farming that uh, we're going to need tomorrow is with us today. It's just under huge threat uh, from you know the rampant march of factory farming, and that's why we got to stop it. How much do you think, Philip, that Monsanto, with their genetically modified food and organisms, they're filing patents on pigs, they already did, and other animals, they filed patents on the molecular structure of seeds. How does this play into what the animals are fed? Do you have an opinion about that, or do you have a stance on that? Well, I think that uh, that the use of uh, biotechnology to control the food system, um, if that's what is happening uh, and where that is happening, is a, is a worrying development. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that we don't rob. Uh, local people, particularly in developing countries, of the ability to feed themselves. We don't want uh, you know, uh, uh, corporate um, uh, corporate uh, activity to get in the way of people feeding ourselves. And there's another thing, actually, the factory farming. Actually, the, the common argument is that factory farming gives you cheap food. And it does apparently if you don't if you don't take into account the public health impacts, the environmental impacts and, and those kind of things. But by hoovering up so much grain, one in every three uh, uh, grains harvested in the world every year are used to feed factory farmed animals now. That's fact. And some denominations of uh, gra- uh, grain um, cereals, um, it, it's a higher value than that. But one in three average of, this, of the uh, grain harvest used to feed factory farmed animals. What that does in a world of ever greater uh, you know, need for food for humans is it pushes up the basic commodity price of uh, foodstuffs uh, and the the people who are most vulnerable when uh, food prices for basic foodstuffs like grains and rices and uh, rice and other things goes up uh, are the, the the people in the least developed countries 
the people that are least able to afford it. So factory farming pr- pushes up globally food prices, doesn't deliver globally cheap food. What are your biggest obstacles that you've found in your calling for compassion in world farming? Some of the biggest ob- obstacles is um, getting people to, to listen, um, getting beyond the vested interests, uh, getting beyond those whose job it is to protect the status quo. Uh, I think those are some of the biggest obstacles. Can you explain this thing about the cages, the battery cages for animals? What are they and can you explain what happens with them? This was really upsetting. Well, battery cages, the barren battery cage is a tiny all-wire cage where hens are given less living space than a standard typing pa- uh, piece, typing size piece of paper. You know, just a, a standard sheet of paper that, that the hens get less living space than that. Uh, they can't even flap their wings uh, and they're kept in there for the whole of their life, maybe 12 months, sometimes oh it's two, two years. Uh, and you know, they, they rub their feathers against the bars so they become you know, feather bear. Uh, and they'll also peck each other uh, out of sheer frustration. Uh, it's a terrible condition and it's one of the you know the most appalling aspects of factory farming which really got me into this is there anything you think that would be the key to ending the way this is treated without it becoming so invested in the politics of it that you can't do anything in other words is there a way to go in like a martial artist and make it impossible for this to continue i mean compassion world farming has everything stacked against it complete vested interest trillions of dollars around the world and a disconnect fundamentally in consciousness with regard to understanding and recognizing that animals are sentient beings so they don't care about the spiritual suffering of these animals they don't care about the physical suffering of these animals so to get a lion what would it look like what would the manifestation of a law cause for factory farming institutions organizations and farmers well it's interesting that you mentioned martial artists there kim because uh i think that we can use the judo principle which is using the weight of others to you know leverage change for farm animals and in the european union what we did uh, in the 90s was we got a popular movement against factory farming, partly through getting exposés on TV, you know, partly through um, consumer education uh, and, and building controversy. And we have got some, some good start point laws in Europe. For example, the, the horrific veal crate for calves where the animals can't even turn around has now been banned across the European Union. But is it enforced? Is the ban enforced? Because if it's not enforced, yes, it you can ban it legally, but how? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is enforced. Uh, your government inspectors need to look at the uh, look at this thing. And I can tell you that the UK banned veal crates since 1990, and they're, they're, they're gone. They're absolutely gone. Good on you. That's great. That's great. I wish we would Thank- follow suit. I really do. <laughs> I really do. Well, I think... 
I think it's beginning to come. But, you know, to continue that thesis, the European Union has also banned gestation crates for pregnant pigs uh, from 2013. Uh, they're already gone in the UK. Uh, and the barren battery cage, the tiniest, most barren cages, have been banned Europe-wide from 2012. So we're, we're making some strides, not nearly enough, but we're making some strides. We also, in 97, got animals recognized as sentient beings uh, in law. Now, what we're, what we're doing is we're now talking to food companies and whereas in the 1990s, it used to be great fun to be outside food companies and governments and what have you and to have demonstrations and shout and protest. Now, because there is, you know, now because we've got traction, we've got credence for the fact that farm animals should be treated better and that they're sentient beings, we can get attention uh, much more easily. We ring up major food companies and say, hey, we want to come and talk to you about doing something great for your company, for your customers, for farm animals. And you know what? You may win an award for it as well. And by doing this, we have got in the last four years alone, uh, we've got uh, food companies to switch from, uh, to cage-free eggs. Uh, in the European Union to the point where 30 million hens are now better off due to those companies making those switches. That's fantastic. You know who would have loved you? Anita Roddick. <laughs> <laughs> she would have loved you. Just well, loved you. And have you ever heard of John Bird? He does a magazine for the homeless. They actually sell the magazine in the streets called The Big Issue. Oh, wow. Wow. And uh, he's yes. also in your area. I really think a piece should be done on the big issue about what you're doing. I want to bring an example to you of something in the car industry. There was a gentleman I met a year and a half ago who was helping Toyota and a few other manufacturers bring in the hydrogen car. Uh-huh. And they're testing and working on it. They actually have it developed. It's all ready. And they're waiting on governments to create infrastructure for plugging in. And I said to them, why are you waiting on government? Start building your infrastructure. Begin. Put yeah. strategic infrastructure in. Get the public to buy in on it if that's what you want to do and go. Do not wait on the governments for this. In terms of factory farming, a factory farming organization is doing things in a particular way with a particular consciousness and probably has a big concern about shifting, probably largely due to money as the main consideration, how would you set up, if you could, let's say you had a billion dollars, what would you set up to show these factory farmers that it could be done differently? What would you do? Well, I think, to be honest, I'm, I, 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 I'm not sure that I would set up a specific infrastructure because, you know, the answers to tomorrow are with us today. You know, there are some great more humane farms out there and there are companies that are now buying into this thing i think what i would do with that with that money is i would invest in people to go out and talk to the companies to the governments and say hey you know there is a better way here is the economic analysis. We can take you to some pioneer farms that are genuine, working, operating farms that are already making this happen. We can take you to companies that are already seeing the benefit to their customer base, to their bottom line through taking these strides. You know, come with me. 
I will show you. We're doing this uh, with a much smaller budget than the one you suggested, uh, Kim. Uh, <laughs> I, no all... doubt. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this in the European <laughs> Union. We're doing this um, particularly in France, in Italy, in Germany, in the UK. The French are the really Netherlands. into good food, though. So I would imagine they would be open to this because they really care about good food and taking care of themselves and eating fresh everything. And I don't know how the farmers are there or the dairymen. But I'm wondering what your take on it is. Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. They can be um, they they can be persuaded on the good food argument, and I think this is part of it that you and I, Kim, you know, to to us the 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 animal sentience, the animal cruelty is the big issue, and it's where we start and finish. Certainly, that's that's my take on it. But what I what I truly believe is that I want more and more uh, uh, people, more and more organizations more and more companies to take up uh the 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 solution take up the the cause against factory farming if you like on whatever terms works for them so if they're looking at it from a good food point of view they're looking at it from a public health point of view or an environmental point of view that is great they don't need to to, to front load, if you like, to I have hear you. I, the first and foremost thing is the animal welfare. I understand. Yeah. I totally understand. Although I'm sure that you and I both wish that that was understood clearly from the beginning. But I totally understand yeah. what you're saying. It's like the spokes on a wheel. They don't have to go to the spoke to the left, but they can take the one to the right and to the right of that and to the right of that and to the left of that. Exactly. Know? And if they, as, as long as, you know, that there is a convergent trajectory as long as we're all ending up at the same point, which is an end to factory farming and animals treated in a better way, the environment looked after, uh, some of the public health threats that are endemic in, in factory farming are, are uh, you know, that we move beyond that, then all of that takes us to a better world. And you know what? There is then a normalization thing that comes in. You know, people are, are much more able, I believe, to see that going back... Uh, to a factory farm regime, going back to keeping animals in you know, blatantly uh, uh, conditions that cause them suffering you would become unthinkable. That's where we want to get to. You have said that the EU is the key battleground for compassion in world farming. Why? We see the European Union as, uh, as a key battleground because, partly because it's, it's where we are, partly because the European Union of 27 countries um, is uh, you know, a, a, a major, if not the world's biggest, uh, agricultural exporter and importer. Uh, and what happens in the European Union matters to other parts of the world. So we believe whilst we've got traction in the European Union, whilst we are making changes, we need to stick at that because reforming the European Union gives us leverage in other parts of the world. But it's not the only key battleground. Other key battlegrounds are in the United States, are in uh, Latin America, are in Asia, particularly in China and India. These are the areas where... Really? In India? I've been to India. I thought they love cows and they don't hurt them and they don't hurt animals. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, you know, there is a great culture uh, there. You're absolutely right in India. Uh, what is happening, uh, however, in uh, Asia, uh, in India and in China is there is an upsurge 
in demand for meat and dairy products, uh, and there is an upsurge in the development of factory farming. So it's going to be a key battleground, I think, going forward. Oh, definitely in China, I would say. And also Russia. I saw them kicking pigs in a pig farm, and it so upset me. They were so mean to these pigs. My God. They were just crying. They were being kicked in these pens. Literally, I, I saw this. I couldn't believe it. It's terrible, yeah. But you know what? You know, some of the battle is about trying to get across to people what is acceptable and unacceptable in terms of behaviors. Let me give you an example. You know, going back um, nearly 20 years now, I went out with an investigative team. We were investigating um, Spanish slaughterhouses. And we went in one particular Spanish slaughterhouse where um, we saw a truck pull up with uh, six sheep in the back. Now, those six sheep were then picked up by the slaughtermen. They were picked up in a way that to me, translated to uh, to care. You know, the animals were picked up gently and they were carried in a way that you or I might carry a large pet dog to the vet. But they weren't going to the vet, of course. They were hung up by their back leg. Uh, whilst they were dangling and writhing, they had their necks stabbed uh, with a knife. I use that word deliberately. The knife went in one side and out the other. It was not a, a deep cut, and so the animals uh, bled more slowly. Once the sixth animal was hung up and had its neck uh, stabbed, uh, one by one they were taken and they were placed on their backs on a cradle. Uh, at least two of the animals were still clearly conscious. One tried to get off of the uh, cradle. and When they were put on the cradle, they had... Uh, an airline, you know, a pneumatic pump put into uh, their their legs through an ins through through a hole, and they had had their bodies pumped up to make skinning easier. Now those slaughtermen uh, weren't doing that out of malice; they weren't doing that out of wanton cruelty. They simply didn't know that they were supposed to be doing it differently. They didn't know they were breaking European Union rules because they didn't know there were any rules to break. We have a big educational job to do. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. That particular slaughterhouse was, was closed down. But the underlying part of this story is partly about expose, partly about education, partly about getting our society to the next level uh, of consciousness about animals, their sentience, uh, and how we should treat them and how we should not mistreat them. It's amazing to me that you're able to have the poise, the centeredness, the calm in the way you articulate this. It's so deeply upsetting. I think it's really a huge testimony to you that you're able to steward this in a way where you're not on a rampage about it. You're articulate about it and you can shepherd this in. It's a huge thing. It's hard not to feel the connection and the despair of what animals go through, even while you're doing it. I mean, I hear the story that you just said, and it's so upsetting to me. Thank you for that. You know, it's it's not easy, but uh, you know, I think being able to put these put these things across um, in a way which uh, other people can uh, connect with and feel that uh, you know that the story is genuinely uh, meant, um, but is not. Um, 
uh, put over in a you know a hectoring or hysterical way. I think right. these are uh, these are important uh, communications tools and and ones which uh, you know increasingly as a movement we 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 need to make sure that we deploy. Can you talk a little bit about kosher killing of animals? Because I come from a Jewish family. And it was always a belief that kosher was compassionate treatment of animals. Is it or isn't it? Tell me the truth. Because I don't know. Just because yeah. a rabbi's there doesn't mean everything going on is good. It's all about the paradigm. What is your factual understanding of the kosher way? Is it better? What really happens? Have you ever investigated this? Yeah. Yeah, we've looked into this a lot. And uh, speaking frankly, you yes. know, an animal that is slaughtered, whether it be for um, you know, under a religious doctrine or or, or any other, uh, if an animal is, has its throat cut with whilst it's fully conscious, uh, without pre-slaughter stunning, uh, that is going to cause uh, immense suffering, uh, and uh, and cannot, uh, in my view, be uh, seen as humane. When you say without going through pre-slaughter, did you say? Stunning? Pre yeah, pre-slaughter stunning. Yeah, you know, in um, if we were if we were looking to achieve humane slaughter, then um, what we would be looking to do is to render the animal unconscious and thereby insensitive to pain before its throat is cut, before it uh, uh, feels any um, fear or other distress. I agree with you. Is that easy to do? Uh, it can be done, um, and it is uh, it, it is done. Um, the 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 you know, for for cattle, for example, you would use a captive bolt pistol. Um, certainly, in um, conventional slaughter, it is a legal requirement in the European Union. Uh, there are exemptions to that legal requirement for religious purposes, uh, and. Uh, under that exemption, animals can have their throats cut whilst they're still fully conscious. Uh, and that, uh, to me, and according to the scientific evidence, will cause pain and uh, uh, immense suffering. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of us are told things that we believe when we're growing up. So I was told that cutting an animal's throat is the most humane way of slaughter. So that's what I believed all these years. I don't know about the science of it. I didn't know that they hung them by their feet when they did that, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is also painful to the animal. I can't imagine if you did it to a human that it wouldn't be stressful and painful and have them suffer. But that's the translation from people living in the older paradigm which is that they're not sentient and it's the quickest, most humane way to kill them. When that um, belief, when that practice was first adopted, it probably was um, a, the, the most, you know, it probably was a huge step forward. You know, if you think about how animals must have been treated uh, you, in millennia gone by, you know, you go back, uh, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years, it must have been a really awful time for, for animals. There was no refrigeration, you know, no way of storing. Um, perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps one way of um, keeping meat, uh, of having meat and, and keeping the rest fresh may be to cut an animal's uh, leg off. Um, 
the you, so it may have been that That's in terrible. the time oh, that wow. it may, it may have been that you know animals were so badly treated that the idea of uh, cut uh, of a deep clean cut with a sharp knife do it one time and do it quick that may well have been the most humane practice at that time nowadays though there are other ways you know, uh, more advanced methods of um, reducing pain and suffering uh, to a point where humane slaughter could uh, be achieved and that includes uh, making the animals unconscious before their throat is cut. Are animals still killed by shooting them in the head like in the old days? Well, they're, they're shot in the head with a captive bolt pistol, certainly um, larger animals such as cattle. Uh, it's not a free bullet, so it's not like a, a gun where the bullet comes out. Um, the captive bolt is is essentially exactly what it says. You you fire the gun against the animal's head, and the bolt, which you know basically causes uh, the animal to be knocked out, stays with with the instrument, so it doesn't go in. It just bashes the animal into unconsciousness. Uh, for for pigs and sheep, the the way of achieving stunning is through um, electrical stunning. Wow, that's bad. Yeah, well, you've got to remember, though, what you're trying to achieve is, you know, if we're going to talk technical about this, what you're trying to achieve is you're trying to uh, render the animal insensible to pain so that it can no longer suffer um, before, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the pain of, let's say, electricity cuts in. And if you or I pushed a pin into ourselves... Uh, it would not hurt immediately. It would hurt uh, after about a tenth of a second. You, know, you and I would feel it was, you know, we, we would think it was immediate, but in scientific terms, we would feel the pain a tenth of a second after the pin went in. So what you need to do with the electrical stunning equipment or with the captive bolt is it needs to bring about unconsciousness within a tenth of a second. Uh, Does it deliver that? It the the electrical stunning, if it's done correctly, calibrated correctly, will deliver unconsciousness within thirty five milliseconds. So well within uh, that tenth of a second. So you've got quite a bit of margin of, of error there. Interesting. Very, very yeah. interesting. But that's, you know, that's, we're now getting into the science of... Well, but you know what? We're in the details of what really happens, and I think the public needs to know. Most of us, myself included, are often disconnected from what really happens. What happens to them? We don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're coming back to the, to the, to the kosher angle. Your halal uh, uh, slaughter is, is, is similar in that... Uh, uh, you is often uh, done without pre-slaughter stunning, um, but I have to tell you that increasingly um, halal slaughterers are accepting that pre-slaughter stunning doesn't render uh, the the you know doesn't um, obviate um, doesn't violate uh, the the uh, religious doctrine. 
is becoming increasingly accepted. The That's priesthood great. Is stunning. That's fantastic. And, and, and halal can be together. Yeah. How do you raise money for Compassion in World Farming? We raise it purely from generous, um, open-hearted individuals uh, in in Europe mainly. Uh, yeah, just we we have. We have 38,000 donors who, uh, who send us money, um, and we, we are you know, hugely grateful to every one of those. Uh, we have a wider supporter base than that. We have a supporter base in the UK of uh, about 130,000 uh, people. That's such an honorable thing that you're doing. Thank you so much for what you're doing, Philip. Well, Kim... You know, it's it's a calling. It's something which I feel I have to do. And, uh, you know, I'm just so pleased that so many people, um, you are so steadfast in their support. And I really thank you, Kim, for your interest in the work that we do. I'm very interested. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to, learning from, and listening to Philip Limbry, the Chief Executive of Compassion in World Farming. You can reach him and learn more about his work by going to a compassionateworld.org. Philip, thank you so much for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Many blessings. And to you.